when we are back together and in person worship, I will uh, say, let the church say amen. But you can do it now as well. Hearing the wonderful truths sung there beautifully by that blessed duo that God has given to this vocal assembly. We're in, again, the book of Judges, the final message there as we've looked at the life of Gideon and seen the saga there. And we see really God himself who is the one who is the hero of the story. I need to let you know that. He is the hero. God is. Do understand that. He uses human beings to accomplish his mighty work. Judges chapter 8. We this morning begin at verse 22. Let me read the verses in your hearing for them to be set in your mind. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. And they had gold earrings because they were Ishlamites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Let us stop there. Spiritual influence is the subject for this morning's message from the passage I just read to you. The word influence does not appear in the text that I just read. But we see its presence there as we look at the text more closely and think about it. We observe influence being used for spiritual good and for spiritual evil. Gideon is at the center of the use of influence in the narrative. He wills it and he is affected by it. So it is with us. We influence others by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes. And we are influenced by others in those same ways. In a word, we're all influential people. The text that's before us will unfold as we work our way through it. And as we see it unfold, we will gain insight in our own lives in terms of the use of influence. 
Let's begin. I have the first heading. It is this, the right use of influence. Verses 22 and 23. Obviously, the men of Israel were grateful to Gideon, for the Lord had given him a great victory. They had been oppressed, remember, for seven years, and God in his grace and mercy had selected this defeated, discouraged man who was hiding out at his dad's wine press in fear of the Midianites. Remember, it was the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, who came and said, you are going, are a valiant warrior. And they, because they were grateful to him, you notice in verse 22, they say to him, rule over us, both you and your son, and your son's son. You, Gideon, your son and your grandson. They were saying, Gideon, we want you to be a royal dynasty. You started off. They say, after all, you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. That statement there is true as far as it goes. It doesn't tell the whole story. It was Yahweh who delivered them. Remember, Gideon was but Yahweh's instrument. We remember that in chapter 7, verse 2. It's interesting that they didn't stop, at least the text doesn't indicate it, perhaps they didn't do it, maybe that's why it is not stated here. They did not stop first to thank Yahweh. There was no time of celebration and praise to him for what he accomplished through his chosen instrument, Gideon. That wouldn't have been unusual. In fact, that was a pattern established way back during the time of the Exodus. Recall when the Red Sea, the, it parted, and they got on the other side. Pharaoh's army was drowned, and guess what Moses did? He composed a song, and they sang praise to his name. You remember also, and that was Exodus 15, you remember also Miriam. She led the women with a tambourine in praise to the name of the Lord for the great victory that he accomplished at the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. Earlier in this very book, after Israel and Deborah and Barak defeated their enemy, they, together, uh, Deborah and Barak, they sang a song of praise. For they recognized it was the Lord who had done it. We don't see such a thing here. Perhaps it's indicative of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel at this time. We might ask the question, since they made this proposition to uh, Gideon, where did this idea come from? Perhaps it's this. They had been influenced by the surrounding nations. Everybody else had a king, a living, breathing, visible king with all the uh, insignia of the monarchy. And no doubt they saw that. In fact, they had defeated a nation that had two, at least two kings. And they said, well, we want us a king too. And Gideon, you look like you could be a good king. Influenced by pagan nations. But you need to understand, though, at this point in Israel's history, Yahweh had not authorized kingship or a monarchical rule for Israel. Let me put it like this. They were out of bounds. They were asking for something that God hadn't required. He would later, but not now. Now, without question, Gideon had to have been honored by this request. <laughs> uh, it certainly was a temptation for Gideon. 
as it would have been for any of us to be elevated to a position of a power and authority? We'd say, oh, yes, yes, why not me? <laughs> but Gideon, interestingly, given this opportunity to influence his countrymen, he was given this opportunity to guide their actions by his response. He refused. He refused the offer of kingship for himself, for his son, and for his son's son. He said no to a royal dynasty. Rather, you'll see what he says in response. The bottom of the verse, the Lord shall rule over you. It's a good, good answer. <laughs> he said a theocracy, not a monarchy. This nation, you, will be ruled by God himself. In fact, he is the king. Deuteronomy 33, 5, I think it is. He is king in Jeshurun, Moses said. He was their king. Here, Gideon, using his influence, wielding his power uh, that was given to him, he upheld the will of God. Christians, there's a lesson here for us. We can use our influence in a similar fashion with the fellow members of the body of Christ. We're to talk of Christ and his right to rule as Lord over his, his flock, which he purchased with his own blood. He is to rule over us. 1 Peter 3, 15 expresses it without any ambiguity. It says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That term there in 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify is a translation of the Greek term hagiazo. And it connotes to set apart. In our hearts, Christ is to be set apart as Lord. What does this mean? Let's develop it here for a moment. He is to be set above all other allegiances. You may have some allegiances of this to that, but Christ is to be at the head of all of them. He is supreme. His lordship means our submission to him. He holds priority over all the decisions that we make. That verb, sanctify, is an aorist imperative in the original, informing us that to sanctify Christ in our hearts is a once-for-all demand for him to be given that position. You notice what I said, a once-for-all demand. He is not requesting it. He is not saying, you can do this if you feel like it. He is saying, no, I demand to have the supremacy in your life. His rulership, Christ's rulership, is to begin in believers' innermost being, that is, in our heart. You know, that's where our decisions are made. Th that, that's the center of our life, the inner being. Whatever we do externally, whatever decisions we make, whatever actions we perform, all of that, it comes from the heart. But Christ, who 
lives in us, he is to have authority there. For from the heart spring the issues of life. Remember Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. So this is Christ's lordship in our hearts. It's the fun foundational reality of our life. It is the animating reality of our life. Christ is Lord. He is our Lord. So let's put it like this. I've said it, I'll state it this way. Jesus Christ is to be the supreme influencer of our life in everything. That's true. He is to be the supreme influencer in our life in everything. No exceptions. say, how does he exercise his influence? How does he exercise his sovereignty? How does he exercise his lordship? does it by his word. That's how. Colossians 3.16 is uh, uh, quite, quite clear for us. It says this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ, the gospel all that Christ taught when in the Gospels and through his apostles and the epistles, all the New Testament truths for the church, all of that is to dwell richly in us, richly in abundance. Abundance. We know what rich things look like Things when there's wealth. There's an abundance of stuff, isn't there? Dwell. It's an interesting term. Let's put it like this. This is what it means. Be at home. Be at home. Christ's word is to be at home in our lives. It's, Christ's word is not to be an occasional visitor. Come knocking on the door every now and then. Hey, I thought I'd come and we could chat for a moment. Okay, out. No, it's there. It's at home. It lives with us. It occupies the place. It's comfortable there. That's what it means to dwell within you. And believers are to bow to the authority of Christ's word. That's how Christ exercises his authority over us and we live in submission to him. We uh, to be influenced by it and we can encourage others with these truths in the body of Christ. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, brother or sister. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Richly, brother or sister, that's what he tells us to do. That's how we can influence our fellow Christians. Gideon rightly used this influence that he gained by the monumental achievement that Yahweh granted to him. And he affirmed the truth that Yahweh is going to rule over you. That's what he says. Remember verse 23, the bottom verse, the Lord shall rule over you. He used this influence correctly. And so should we. 
So Gideon exhibits for us the right use of influence. <laughs> I'm tell you something about influence. You have to be on your guard. Influence isn't necessarily permanent. The next point, verses 24 through 27, we want to look at this, that the end of positive influence. Positive, God-honoring influence can be forfeited. And we see in verses 24 through 27 the beginning of the erosion of Gideon's positive influence. Let's look at it and see what happens as we observe this. Gideon refused to be king, but he said, well, you know, in verse 24, I'll tell you what you could do for me. <laughs> Give me earrings. That, that'd be a, a good way you could compensate me. You know, it's a parenthetical statement, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Let me explain that here for a moment. Uh, Ishmaelites was a term originally applied to the nomadic tribe descended from Abraham through Hagar, remember? Genesis chapter 16, 15. The term, because I know you're wondering, how could it be Ishmaelite, Ishmael? since it was Midian they defeated. Well, the term came to take on a broader usage, so it applied to the Midianites as well. So that's who they are. They both descended from Abraham. The Midianites and the Ishmaelites all traced their origin back to Abraham, so they were related. And you notice something. In the spoil are... Uh, the uh, booty uh, that the, the they gained from defeating the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, earrings. Now, I, I want to tell you something. You know, people are really, sometimes modern people think they have a <laughs> um, something up on older people. Uh, C.S. Lewis warned us about chronological snobbery, thinking we, we got something that the folk that lived yesteryear didn't. You notice something in this text. They had gold earrings. The, Midi the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, were not women. Back between 1169 and 1129 B.C., the men in their military wore an earring. Isn't that interesting? People think they got something new. No. Guys were doing that 3,000 years ago, fighting in military. It's in the Bible. <laughs> That's interesting. So they took their 135,000, remember, of the Midianites who were defeated. And so all those earrings, that was considerable. But they just, he just wanted one from all of his guys. But you notice what the weight of the gold earrings that he requested 1,700 shekels of gold. That's how they, uh, they weighed their money. And the weight of the shekels of gold, it was approximately between 43 and 60 pounds. I can't uh, tell you exactly what that would be in today's money in dollar terms. Somewhere around 150 
plus thousand dollars. So I would say he cleaned up. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad day's uh, pay uh, for a victory that Yahweh had given him. But as I'm, I'm telling you about the erosion of influence, verse 27 From the gold, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophra. Let's stop there. An ephod, or ephod was an apron-like garment worn by the high priest of Israel. It's made of linen, purple and blue, beautiful, had gold thread woven in it. The high priest wore this, had rows across it, four of them in each row, stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And in this breastplate on the ephod was um, a pouch that contained the Urim and Thummim. Urim, light, or lights. Thummim, perfection or perfection, perfect light. Uh, the Urim and Thummim were used to give divine guidance. We don't know exactly how it worked. And trust me, I've read things, scholars, and nobody knows exactly what the Urim and Thummim were. Perhaps they were pebbles, but we don't really know that definitively because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it was a way to discern or gain the, the uh, mind of God, the will of God. So this effort belonged to the, the, the high priest. The problem here in the book of Judges and with Gideon was this. The priesthood had become corrupt and the high priest had become ineffectual. Not once in the book of Judges do we read of the high priest functioning according to the word of God. You won't find it. They didn't produce spiritual leadership for the people. And it seems then that Gideon wanted to correct that spiritual problem. Notice that the fashioning of the effort at this point is when Gideon's spiritual influence took a negative turn. Gideon really wanted to fill that spiritual vacuum, but that was the wrong way to do it. I, perhaps he thought that by having the effort here, uh, we could get divine guidance. Uh, after all, God had given me guidance, remember in chapter 6 and 7? And so, uh, perhaps that's, that's, that's what Gideon was attempting to do when he made it into an effort and placed in his city, Ophrah. Gideon had apparently good intentions. I had good intentions. When I was a young teenager, I mowed my grandmother's lawn. In the process of mowing her lawn, and she took care of it. She had flowers. It was beautiful. She worked in her yard up until she couldn't any longer. In my uh, expert lawn care service, along with mowing her grass, yes, I mowed down some of her flowers. I had no idea that there was a distinction <laughs> between her 
or grass because the flowers somehow looked like the grass. I didn't know. I just drew. I said, I ain't getting this done. I was utterly oblivious to my era until my grandmother pointed it out to me. But she was so gracious and kind to me about it. It was a spirit, it was a blunder. A big mistake. And here with Gideon, on a far greater scale, was a blunder of the spiritual kind. Here is why it was a blunder. Yahweh had not authorized Gideon to make an effort. Gideon was like a person practicing medicine without a license. Yahweh hadn't told him to do that. That's when things go wrong. It's when we step out and become innovators in the spiritual realm as he did. When we begin to do things that God hasn't commanded us to do. Gideon's good spiritual intention really was a profound spiritual uh, error, profound spiritual blunder, and it began to be realized. Notice in the text. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. What that means is that term harlot of prostitution is speaking of spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to the Lord. It was a departure from what they knew to be true. It was apostasy. Rather than seeking divine guidance, the people saw it and said, oh, let's worship it. Spiritual unfaithfulness. He influenced them the wrong way. became even a spiritual trap. Notice the word snare for Gideon and his household there in verse 27. Uh, a spiritual trap. What scholars think could ha have happened, syncretistic worship, joining of worship of God and false gods or idols. He can't do that. <laughs> um, God is to have exclusive worship. Worship is his domain. And Gideon was affected by his choice and his family. Something about even negative influence, keep this in mind. You can't contain the effects of a bomb that explodes. There will always be collateral damage. People will be affected even when you don't anticipate it being so. That's why it's always right to do it God's way. That was the end of his positive influence. But it, it's, it's not over yet. It's another point. The result of pagan influence. Verses 28 through 35. Do understand this, and I think all of us do understand this reality. We do not live in bubbles, a bubble as a Christian. We're not hermetically sealed from the world's influences. 
Though we are not of the world, we are in it. We still live here in this planet around uh, pagan people. We're surrounded by anti-God, anti-biblical philosophies, immoral lifestyles, and its influence is real and constant. It's pull on us. It's there. No Christian who is spiritually sober-minded takes lightly the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Paul, in pinning those words, writing to Christians. The Christians at Corinth, he said, hey guys, don't think you're above it. Israel fell. The previous verses talks about it. Don't think that it can't happen to you. We are not exempt from failure. We're not exempt from coming to temptation. We have to be aware of that. And think about Gideon. He had been mightily used by Yahweh in securing the freedom for Israel. But he succumbed to pagan influence. Notice, back in verse 28, he had already compromised worship. It had become a snare. This is the man who was the valiant warrior, the man who had received divine confirmation from the second person of the Trinity himself. This is the man who was now resorting, turning back to syncretistic worship like his dad, Joash. Not only that, he was a polygamist. Verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were this direct descendants, for he had many wives. 70 sons? Can you imagine? It's polygamy. Polygamy is a sin. God intends one man for one woman. Genesis 2, 24. Gideon, you know, he turned down the kingship, but he's acting like one. He had a harem. That's what kings did. They could afford it, and Gideon could afford it. He said, I can have as many wives as I want. That's not all. Verse 31, his concubine was in Shechem, also bore him a son. A concubine is a woman who did not have the same status as wives. She lived in Shechem. She didn't even live with Gideon. He would just go visit her in her dad's house. Gideon adopted the lifestyle of pagans. He took the moral standards of the world. He was influenced by them rather than the word of God. I'm going to tell you, uh, the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It says that two or three times in this very book. There was no king to enforce the law of God. So people just did whatever they thought. Their culture was um, an ungodly culture. Surrounded by pagans who are still in the promised land. It's not unlike ours. 
Our culture is accepting of sexual perversion, sexual deviance, sexual immorality. It accepts it as if it's okay. There was a time in this nation where there was even a consensus among people who weren't Christians, but they understood uh, that's wrong. Now, no one blushes. People used to blush. Now I guess you have to get it the cosmetic counter. For those of you who don't know, it's what women put on. Anyway, never mind. Oh, boy. <laughs> and you know as well as I do, one of the major things that's happened in the last six, seven, eight years has been essentially a wholesale acceptance of homosexuality. It is seen as a valid expression of human sexuality, biblical prohibition notwithstanding. It's going to get worse. You, 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 could, you could watch a commercial, and it's obvious that they intend here's same-sex relationship, even with families. It's treated casually. It's treated. It's okay. No problem. As I was thinking about this this week, I began to fear for our nation. Because it's moral departure. It's thumbing its nose at God's word. It is calling evil good, Isaiah 5. I don't know how long a nation can go on like this. I'm not a prophet, but I do know what the scripture says, and I, I really fear for our nation. It's turning its back on what God says, God, eh, we got this. We do it our way. But we who are Christians, we uh, understand that the Bible is authoritative. It's binding on our consciences in terms of what we believe and how we live. It sh is to shape us, not culture. Romans 12, 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, the shaping of our life is to come from Scripture, not from culture. That's why we need the word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly, so it can renew our minds and it can shape our living and as we confront various ideas, philosophies, and thoughts, and all the stuff that the world is pumping out relentlessly, we can say, no, this is what the Word of God says. This is what I believe, because God said it, and this is how I'm going to live. It's authoritative for me. Os, O-S, Guinness, Christian writer, says this, it is always sola scriptura, and should never be sola cultura. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, never culture alone. He further puts it this way. It is a two-sided practice. Yes to biblical truth 
and no to cultural norms if they damage our walk with God and rob us of what he has for us in his word. Always say yes to biblical truth. Always say no to what the culture is teaching, knowing that it contradicts the word of God and it will damage our walk with him. It's clear. Again, Romans 12, 2 in part says this. We're to be transformed. David Wells puts it this way. Being transformed also means being unconformed. We're the unconformed people. We're out of step. We march to a different drummer. We stick out like a sore thumb because we're unconformed people. Mind renewal by God's word is critical in our defense against pagan influence. We in our nation were thankful for NORAD. NORAD is the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Our nation in Canada worked together, established in 1957 uh, to com combat the threat from the former Soviet Union, NORAD. Some of you know NORAD because every Christmas they have this nonsense as if those guys really attract a mythical, a non-existent figure called Santa. Every time I said, this is crazy. Just nuts. <laughs> there is no Santa. But they do it for the kids. It's all pagan fun. But NORAD, they're committed to the defense of our skies. And what I find interesting about their statement is this. They do three things. Warn, air sovereignty, and protection. And I thought exactly what the word of God does for us. It warns us. Think of all the warnings in scripture about the influence of evil and sin and Satan. Air sovereignty. God expresses his sovereignty over us through his word. Protection. He protects us from that which would harm us. That's our defense, the word of God. Living in a pagan world. It is to influence us supremely. Gideon made no permanent spiritual difference in the life of Israel. In fact, if you continue reading through the book of Judges, you'll see the decline continues apace. You do not have to end up like Gideon. You can leave a legacy of godly influence in the lives of others. Your family, your church, and others who come into the orbit of your spiritual influence, you can bequeath to them by your life and your teaching a legacy that will live beyond you. You see, 
when they're standing around the graveside and the preacher saying the final words over you, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and then they lower your remains into the ground. What you want to really remain is more than just your body in the ground, but a godly legacy that has impacted people because you are influenced by the truth of God's word. That's how you want to end up. That's how you end the right way. And we have a way to do it. It's been clear, made clear to us. So may God help us all to leave a spiritual legacy. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, for uh, your truths. We thank you for what, how it ministers to us and continues to shape our lives, our thinking, uh, and brings you glory, advances your cause. May we uh, be increasingly spiritually influential people because we uh, yield to your authority. We walk by your word. We pray you do this for your own glory, ultimately, the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord. For all these things we ask you to do in his glorious name. Amen. I'll tell you what, I'd like to encourage you to give your life to Christ if you're not a Christian. Uh, the best thing you'll ever do in life is surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. He's willing to save you from your sin. That is, from the penalty of your sin, which, if you die in your sins, means eternal separation from God in a place called hell. He will forgive you, make you new, and put you in the family of God. Turn to Jesus Christ who was buried after he died and he was raised from the dead and lives forevermore and he's willing to save any repentant sinner. Come to him while you can. We implore you to give your life to him, serve and love him, experience the joy of belonging to the king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Well, we'll be here again, God willing, next uh, Lord's Day. We encourage you to join us then as we continue to serve our Lord together.